TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, some coming-of-age stories from conversations Debbie had in 2019. I always felt like I was trying to not be noticed. I felt the need to tell everyone my whole life story, like, no, I'm not rich. A lot of what I did was just study the craft in my room before I was able to go outside. That person was in a really, really dark place. Everyone's forgiven. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. I love to travel. Whether it is for pleasure or business or design conferences or speaking engagements, I love to visit places I've never been before and experience new things. AC Hotels by Marriott has been striking the perfect balance of the details I want when I'm on the road. AC Hotels are intuitively designed, refined, crafted, and considered to create an elegant and unobtrusive experience that lets me maximize enjoyment, inspiration, and efficiency. The AC guest rooms provide me with everything I need and nothing I don't. They're uncluttered and truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. If you've been listening for a while to Design Matters, you know I like to go deep with my guests. I like to ask them about the intimate details of their careers, how they got their first break, their failures and triumphs, what they were thinking when they gave up something secure to do something crazy and creative. And I really like to ask them about their childhood and their formative years, because you can't really know someone unless you know where they come from. On this episode, we're going to revisit some of the conversations I had with some of my guests in 2019 about their early years. We'll spend a few minutes with each one. First up, 
the British visual artist Chantel Martin, who is known for her playful, large, black-and-white drawings. She has said that when she was growing up, her stepdad wasn't very nice to her, so I asked her about that. Wow, we jumped right in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, it's like, to expand on that a little bit, you know, it's like sometimes when a lot of us are coming from, you can call them non-functioning homes, right? So my mum... She didn't finish school. Her mother didn't finish school. You know, it's a it's a working class system. There is a lack of um, resources. There's a lack of support. There's a lack of alternatives. And so I feel like for a lot of these women, they're stuck in a way. And so my mum unfortunately ended up in a situation where, you know, I had a couple of stepdads who weren't nice, who did drink, who who also themselves probably came from complete broken homes and didn't really realize what they were doing either because there was no other real model beyond that. And so I think that, you know, my stepdads weren't very nice to me in a way because they weren't very nice to themselves or anyone else around them. There wasn't any other way than that. That was normal. You know, and growing up where I grew up, that was normal. It wasn't kind of outside of that. And so... In a way, like I did go into my shell because I'm also very, very different from all of my family. My family are very loud. They're very in your face. Uh, they're, they're not shy at all. And I don't know, I, you know, I, I say that I'm shy, but I don't know if I grew up anywhere else. Maybe I wouldn't be. But growing up in the family that I grew up, I did tend to become more reserved. I tend to be more by myself. And I think that that was me in a way creating a safe space around myself. That was me creating a bubble around myself. And and so, you know, you survive. And I think I survived by creating this safe place around me and by also getting stuff out through drawing and through writing, not knowing that it was art at the time, but knowing that it was a tool that I had to get these things out. And the writing that I did at the time was very lost. It's very helpless. It's very dark. And I look back at this stuff and I say, wow, that person was in a really, really dark place and a really lost, helpless place. But they were so lucky that they had this gift or this access to pens and paper and a tool to get this stuff out. And I wonder often that people come in from similar situations and backgrounds, if they don't have that, then how do they deal with those things? If they don't have that, how do they get all that anger and stuff out? If they don't have that, how do they evolve and experience their environment? And so the stuff I did was very dark and lots of skulls and red and black and, and you know, words. But, but within there, I feel like there was still this fundamental fingerprint or identity that is still recognizably me now, even when I look back. Even back then, you were using somewhat unconventional canvases for your artwork and your writing. You draw characters underneath your bed, on the insides of your curtains. What drew you to drawing on these sort of hidden parts of things? As a kid, I was always getting in trouble for drawing. It's something that I did all the time. You know, I couldn't help it. I draw on my hands. I draw on friends at schools. I draw on my clothes. I draw on their clothes. I draw on the back of my school books. And I would get in trouble for it all the time. So in a way, you know, as my character became more reserved, so did my drawing and my drawing would hide. And so I would end up drawing behind my curtains or like you said, under my bed. 
because those are places that people weren't going and, and the drawing wasn't exposed and I wouldn't get in trouble if people couldn't see what I was drawing, but I was still able to like get it out and, and do what I felt like I needed to. Chantelle Martin from my interview with her in May 2019. Zoe Mendelson is a journalist, researcher, information designer, and content strategist who is deeply involved in issues of social justice. She grew up in Chicago in two very different neighborhoods, and I asked her about that. You were considered a poor kid in the rich neighborhood you first grew up in, and then when your parents divorced and you moved, you were the rich girl in a poor neighborhood, so to speak. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, enlightening. It was the most instructive thing that ever happened and and luckiest, I think. I mean, I had such a chip on my shoulder about being the poor kid, like all these, you know, girls would have a new winter jacket every winter and say, why do you have the same jacket as last year? We were pretty young. So even kids being like, you're poor, (laughs) you know, real creative insult. (laughs) But um, why do you live in an apartment? You know, that kind of stuff and and feeling bad for myself about it because it was this like a lower status, but then moving and realizing in a lot of ways I was richer than the kids that had more money than me, you know, because, you know, my parents were struggling and maybe their parents had decent jobs, but I had so many more resources at my disposal. And that was just very obvious even before I could identify it. And so I sort of learned about my white privilege. And then I was, you know, because I was white, I was the rich white girl I felt the need to tell everyone my whole life story, like, no, I'm not rich. But it it immediately felt stupid because I, I could tell, even though I was too young to articulate why, that I had more privilege. It was just obvious. And it made me very sensitive to those things and gave me very concrete reasons to have my political beliefs from a really young age. And, and it made me have a sense of responsibility And I'm grateful for that. You moved to Uptown Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, That neighborhood has the highest concentration of sex offenders, homeless shelters, methadone clinics, and the last single-room occupancy building in the city. It's affectionately known, if you can call it that, as the world's largest psychotic hillbilly ghetto jungle. Well, I don't know if those things are still true about Uptown. They were definitely true when I wrote my college thesis, but that was a while ago now. Um, Not that long ago, Zoe. You're still in your 20s. Right, but I don't know. I I mean, Uptown's been gentrifying a lot. It's different. I don't know. I, I, I haven't spent much time there lately, but... Yeah, it was a crazy, radical difference from the almost all white... I mean... My suburb that I grew up in, Glencoe, was so white that I walked up to a black lady when I was like eight and said, hey, whose nanny are you? Mm -hmm. What did she say? She said, I'm not a nanny. I live three houses down from you. And I didn't get it about why what I had done was bad. And then I moved into a neighborhood where we were very much in the minority as white people. How did that experience impact your beliefs? You mentioned before that it really influenced how you think about the world politically. Well, I got a real dose of what is reality and being exposed to sort of raw darkness of, you know, there's a lot of mentally ill people there and there's no, it's not a gang violence problem. It's more homeless people and and mentally ill people and a lot of prostitutes, like, very visible, and just 
okay, this is real. This is people's reality. And, and just Chicago has freezing cold winters and having it in my face all the time was a constant reminder that like, okay, I'm going to walk into my nice warm house now and all those people are going to stay out here in this freezing icy hell. And I don't know. I mean, I guess a lot of kids grow up in the city. Maybe that's not such a unique experience, but I felt it. Zoe Mendelson from our conversation in July 2019. James Victoria is a celebrated designer and the author of several books about creativity. Before he became a big shot, there were some bumps in the road. For example, he was asked to leave his hometown college. So leave the school or thrown out of the school? I was thrown out. I got a (laughs) 0.04 cum. Here's a funny thing that no one knows. Coming straight out of high school, you know, you finish high school and there's um, there's a little celebration where they tout everybody up on stage and they give them their diploma and they pat you on the back. And I worked hard to get into the military academy and I was an alternate for the Air Force Academy, but it didn't come through and I didn't apply to other schools. So when it came time for that little celebration, that little ceremony, um, I didn't want to blank next to my name because all my friends were going to Dartmouth and West Point. Like I was with some fancy guys, right? <laughs> I didn't want to blank. So it literally, it said, James, you know, Jim Victoria is uh, pursuing a career as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How, and oddly how, enough, how serendipitous. oddly enough, yeah. To a certain degree, that's what I do for a living. Absolutely. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> well, I, essentially, what what? how were you asked to leave? Ah, but that yes, was the question. Yes. Well, I, yeah, so, were... so I didn't get into the, the Air Force Academy, but I could get into my the State University in my hometown late. There was one class that about Shakespeare that just moved me, and I was just like, that it's, it, uh, we did an entire semester on Hamlet and an entire semester on Romeo and Juliet. It was so brilliant. But after the year, um, I was waiting tables with, with Gary uh, at Gary's place. I was um, working as a ski patrol during the weekends. And I was uh, basically super unhappy at university and sleeping and crying in my car between classes because I just didn't know. You were living in your car at that point. Pretty much. And I just didn't know kind of where to go. I didn't know. I knew I was extra furniture at home. You know, 18 years old, kind of clumsy and just wanted to, you know, chase a skirt and be out late. Um, so I was super lost and uh, it was it was a, it was a I think I think a lot of people have that kind of painful point where they're like, I don't know what to do. And that's when Gary said, you know, go to New York. And that's so I, I like I think after he said it, I think I left immediately. But the school, yes, the school basically helped because they they. They gave me a super low grade, in, um, and, and um, I'm, I'm out of there. James Victory from our conversation in February 2019. If you're into comics and graphic novels, you probably know about Seth. The Canadian cartoonist is most famous for his series Palookaville and for graphic novels like It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken. Seth frequently tells stories that are steeped in his past and his troubled family. Everything's complicated. Both my mother and my father, if I were to just like describe them in certain terms, sounds quite damning. And yet I love them both incredibly and deeply, and I miss them both. And yet my father's anger was really like um, he did terrorize us. And my mother, because of her mental problems and, 
and the institutionalization she'd went under was, you know, very cold. And yet I never doubted either of them loved me. And as a child, I was exactly the kind of child who didn't feel... I wasn't a neurotic child in that sense, although the story was pretending to cry certainly sounds a little neurotic. Oh, I don't think so. I think that's that's <laughs> very human. It's interesting because yeah. you've said that your childhood was this complex time period, yet you think about it constantly mm-hmm. and think about it with pleasure, I even do. the unpleasant stuff. Do you think that's mm-hmm. synthesized happiness? Do you think that you've gotten over a lot of it? Tell me about what is pleasant about the thinking. Well, one is I certainly have gotten over a lot of it. I literally have said, like, everyone's forgiven, including me. And the funny thing about it is, is that, um, yes, I would not want to be a child again under any circumstances or a teenager or anything in the past. I'm the happiest I've ever been now. That said, there's something about childhood that allows you to partition off the different areas of experience. And I'm certainly not going back and revisiting in my mind the, the bad stuff. I'm thinking mostly about the good stuff. And a lot of the good stuff is kind of like this little world of a bubble that I remember living in with my mother, that strange world of because my, my parents had no friends and no one ever visited us, and we um, were constantly moving. The family joke was someone was, must have been chasing my father because we moved every year. Why did you move so often? I have no idea. He was just uncomfortable. He was always dissatisfied with everything. So, And usually what that leads to is you move down in the world. You're not moving up. So everywhere you move is a little worse, not always in a direct arc, but certainly all your possessions get wrecked when you're moving every year. And there was a certain kind of increasing shabbiness in our life that I've been trying to avoid now. But the funny thing was about all this was that funny little world of just me and mother in these kind of places that was kind of quiet, a lot of television, has like ingrained a kind of a bubble experience for me that I try to recreate when I'm working. I like to be in that sort of sweet spot that's kind of separate from the world. It's, uh, in retrospect, it was kind of depressing, except that I don't see it that way. I think of it in a very romanticized way. Seth, from a conversation in May of 2019. Say Adams is a designer who has done almost more than anyone to create the visual language of hip-hop. As the founding creative director for Def Jam Recordings, he created the visual identities for the Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, and Notorious B.I.G., Before that, though, he was out tagging on the streets of New York City. I asked him all about that. You began writing graffiti when you were young. Some sources say as a teenager, others as early as grade school. So when did you first become aware of graffiti and when did you start writing it? Probably in junior high school, early to mid-70s. But I didn't, quote-unquote, turn professional until I was able to really leave the house. So at that point, I'm still just tagging in the neighborhood, which to me, looking back, wasn't quite as big of a deal as it was when I started to travel to the Bronx. And then I started to see all these amazing top-to-bottoms and whole cars that were really beautiful. And that was when I sort of really caught the bug that I wanted to really take it to the next level. And that meant sneaking out at night. And it meant figuring out how I was going to get paint and materials and how I was not going to get caught by my parents. And so that's in my mind when I turned professional and really took it to the next stage. I read that when you were first mesmerized by graffiti, it then wouldn't leave you alone. 
And I, I love that quote, this sort of passion of yeah. not ever being able to get away from it. In my mind, it was everywhere because, you know, the other thing is I'm a teenager. I don't have any money. I, I, you know, I was never really, you know, savvy when it came to, like, talking to girls and things like that. So I, I wasn't going out on any dates. I was a, you know, somewhat decent athlete, but even those things sort of cost money if you couldn't afford a baseball glove, you know. So graffiti was one of those things that, you know, it sort of didn't cost anything. It was everywhere. And because I was an artist, I could do everything in my room. So I would just spend a lot of time, you know, in a lot of ways, this is sort of a contemporary definition of a nerd by these, you know, in these times. But a lot of what I did was just sort of study the craft in my room before I was able to go outside. Now, did that make your parents angry? I read one account where they got angry at you for, for doing this. Sure. Angry, I mean, all, alone, all alone in your room. Sure. You know what, what spray paint smells like and, and magic markers. And, you know, just imagine somebody playing with turpentine all day in their bedroom. You're going to know <laughs> what they're doing. And it was a problem for sure. I mean, we would, you know, my brothers and I, we would tag the dressers, the, the back of our door and there was you know the three of us and we shared one room so it wasn't a lot of real estate to begin with but you know in in some way I guess they also knew where we were and so you know kids are running around and they're you know drinking at a young age or smoking cigarettes or experimenting with you know pills and drugs or whatever it was my thing was always ink and magic markers and spray paint so in, in retrospect I guess my folks you know got off pretty easy Say Adams from our conversation in April of 2019. T. Uglo is the creative director for Google's Creative Lab in Sydney. She's written books, designed innovative websites and apps, collaborated on films, plays, concerts, and exhibits. She's one of the most innovative, path-breaking designers of our time. As a child, however, T. was obsessed with fitting in, so I asked her about that. I was a little boy, so I kind of needed to, um, and I, it, it was already clear to me at that stage that that's what I was expected to be. So, like, that was the number one kind of part of fitting in was this kind of weird sense of n- not really understanding the, the role I was supposed to play. Actually, since we're on roles, like my mother, who is a historian, always hates the title of historian. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, because she's an editor and a writer. So she writes histories of people and she writes biographies. And there are these extraordinary things where I think she's always understood that how someone presents and what, what they are is in no way like their full narrative. And actually, in order to understand their full narrative, you need to understand not just their history, but the history of the people around them and the history of the culture and society which they grew up in. And um, I think that's always, I mean, it's one of the things about this show is like actually try and pick apart not just what someone says they do, but really who we are. So I always feel like I've spent most of my life not being that, just working out how to pretend to be that. Me too. (laughs) Me too. You said something recently that I, I wanted to talk about. You said this. 
I've been waking up recently to the idea that trans people are expected, for some reason, to express their early lives in terms of trauma or difficulty, a.k.a. the problematic boy years. Mm -hmm. That was certainly often the case, but I'm finding ways to reiterate that I was perfectly happy as Tom. What was Tom like growing up? I don't remember. Really? Yeah, no, I I have no recollection, but like, I'm kind of, so I kind of need to go on all history. Well, you've said that you don't have much on your childhood um, before I get to about 15. Yeah. So so you were still Tom at 15. Yeah. So if, if that's really your first set of memories, what was Tom like then? Oh, oh, just a geeky kind of like shy. I always felt like I was trying to not be noticed. My sister was kind of like a much more... Um, gregarious and, and popular character around town. So, like, I always rather felt more like her brother. Um, so I was just like Hannah's brother, and that was that was fine. So, yeah, I was kind of hung out with my two buddies and painted little metal figures and wrote in my books and drew a lot. And I was just a dweeby art kid, basically. And you were also in the Boy Scouts. I was in the Boy Scouts, exactly. That fits with that. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of <laughs> yeah, I was in. I did those kind of things. Like, were you an outdoor kid? No, I'm not an outdoor kid. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> I was surprised to read that you were in the Boy Scouts because yeah, I, I thought you're sort of things. like me, where you much prefer to be inside. I mean, all of those things come with a sense that yeah, I, I didn't enjoy them, but that's what I was meant to be doing, right? That's that's what I was meant to do. I was meant to play rugby, and I was meant to play cricket, and meant to go and do Boy Scouts and go camping and bivouacking and sleeping rough in the in the woods, and meant to want to ride my uh, mountain bike around the tracks and be outside and be rough and tumble and all of these things that, like, I really didn't want to do, but hey, if it made everyone else happy, and that's fine. It took, it was a very strange process of kind of trying to keep a balance between what people want you to be and a little bit of the ability to push back sometimes and go, actually, I want to sit in my room with my girlfriends and talk shit. T. Uglo from our conversation in May 2015. Roxanne Gay is the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Hunger, the essay collection, Bad Feminist, and the short story collection, Difficult Women and More. She's a professor, Her essays on American culture and politics appear frequently in the New York Times. I interviewed her in front of a live audience at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn, New York, where she spoke about her reputation as a badass on Twitter. Um, Yeah, I'm an internet gangster on Twitter. Well, actually, I think that the gangster part might go a little bit further back. I understand that in your high school yearbook, there's a note from a girl who wrote, I like you, even though you are very mean. (laughs) So were you really mean in high school? (laughs) What? (laughs) No idea what you're talking about. Yes. No, I wasn't. I was really shy and awkward, but apparently my memory of myself and people's memories of me are very different things. And I do remember probably in my sophomore year or so, I developed a mean streak. And it wasn't bullying or anything like that, but if I had something biting to say, I said it. I had no filter. Do you remember any of the 
more biting things you might have done? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Thank God. I have absolved myself of all of those sins, conveniently. Uh, so I don't remember what I said. Now, you've stated that in many ways, likability is a very elaborate lie, a performance, a code of conduct dictating the proper way to be left to our own devices. Do you think that we're all really diabolical deep down inside, Roxanne? I hope so. <laughs> I, I genuinely hope so. No, I don't think we're all diabolical deep down inside, but I think we have imperfections and darknesses inside of us, and some of us are better at hiding them than others. But I never trust anyone who seems perfect and incredibly likable and incredibly nice. I always just think, what's going on under there? So all of like the HGTV hosts, um, anyone who appears on a Hallmark Channel movie. Kelly Ripa. Yes, I just think, no offense to Kelly, we love her. No, I just, whenever I see these people in this performance of niceness, I just think, my God, you are probably the cruelest person alive. And so I think it's more healthy when we at least acknowledge those parts of ourselves. And I think maturity is knowing when to release that and when not to. And so hopefully I have, since high school, matured at least a bit. Except on Twitter. What? <laughs> what are you trying to say? Uh, we'll get to that. Uh. Uh. <laughs> Roxanne Gay. Full disclosure, Roxanne Gay and I were dating when that interview took place in March of 2019, and we're now engaged to be married. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you so much for listening all this time. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. <laughs>